Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. In today's episode, Dr. Daniel D'Angelo of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, Dr. Kel Schmilo of Ritz Hospitalet University Hospital in Copenhagen, Denmark, and Dr. Emily Curran of the University of Cincinnati Cancer Institute in Ohio, will be answering questions asked by the audience during a recent live symposium on the use of asparaginase in the treatment of young adult and adult patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia that was held during the 2022 American Society of Hematology annual meeting. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia Data and Case Discussion on the Use of Asparaginase Therapy in Young and Older Adults. For more information on the experts, along with a link to the complete program, including downloadable slide sets and an on-demand webcast, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say. I'm Dan D'Angelo. I'm at Dana-Farber in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm joined by my two friends and colleagues, Kild Schmiglo, Department of Pediatric Oncology from Copenhagen, Denmark, and my other close friend, Emily Curran who's in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio. So welcome, Emily and Kield. Do you use asparaginase in Philadelphia-positive ALL? So this may be a difference between pediatric, and I'd like to see your opinion. I don't. So we have different clinical trials for our Philadelphia-positive ALL patients that are typically lower intensity, adding a tyrosine kinase, steroids. And then the question, of course, is the addition of glenitumumab now following the D'Alba study or other studies. So we typically don't incorporate asparaginase into our adult patients. The question that comes up, if a young patient under age 20 comes into our clinic, would we do? What's your practice? So in pediatrics, the, the trend has been that you put the TKIs on top of the chemotherapy. And it's clearly been too toxic. The current randomization compares and, and what you could call a U.S. backbone with a European backbone, which is more toxic. And the idea is to downgrade the intensity of the therapy. And that will also be the case for the next step protocol where we will want to use Blina to reduce the therapy even further. So there's no doubt that the Philadelphias are overtreated today. How little is sufficient is, of course, depending on what is your starting point. And if we go back, the starting point was very inferior. Yeah. <laughs> now we realize and really learning from the adult group that some of these patients, and it is needed for the really old patients, can be cured with very little. But, but there, I think the pediatricians are lagging a bit behind. Yeah. Emily? So as an adult oncologist, I tend to follow your approach. I don't I give asparaginase for pH-positive ALL. I do struggle, though, again, as you mentioned, with the very young patients, if I get a 20-year-old, should I send them across the street to the children's hospital to get a TKI plus a pediatric-based backbone, or is something with a little bit less chemo sufficient? We, we still don't know. Yeah. In this particular disease, we're learning that less may be best. What is the oldest patient you've given asparaginase-based therapy to? So I would say 50, 5-0. Emily, you practiced in Chicago, yes. and I know you were part of that, so you may have given it to even older folks than yes. I. Yes, now I'll go into this data very yeah. briefly, but we, we published our single institution retrospective analysis where we would significantly dose reduce the pegasparaginase, but give it up to, I want to say close I, to 70. Yeah. In this particular study, the median age was 46, and it ranged from 33 up to 60, but that was the 75% intercortical range. Actually, on the study, we may have pushed it up close to 70. 
Yeah, there is an ongoing study with another agent called Callus bargase, which is very similar, but a different linker that is exploring the use of, of an asparaginase product in older folks with dose reductions following the University of Chicago. But that's an ongoing clinical trial. So my experience may be a little bit more limited than, than Emily's. Can I just clarify one uh, sure. thing, though, Dan, just so that people don't start giving asparaginase to 70-year-olds? That's That was part of a very intentional trial that we were doing. So I would not recommend that everybody go give asparaginase to 70-year-olds. And then how does high BMI impact dosing of asparaginase? This is one of the things that I'm struggling with. We know that the ASCO teachings is that we do not dose-reduce drugs based on obesity. And we know that there are certain exceptions to that. Asparaginase is one of those. In the Alliance trial that I'm leading that's now on hold, we had taken the use of capping the dose of asparaginase so that patients who had a higher BMI were, in fact, getting a lower per meter squared, if you will, as opposed to not capping it. So instead of 2,000 per meter squared, just regardless of the BMI, we cap it at one vial, which is 3,750. So the higher the BMI, the lower your per meter squared. Uh, but is there a, a number for which I would not give it? And that is why I asked Shai to, to put look at the data. And we're learning that the patients with the higher BMI really have a, a worse outcome. And so should those patients get a lower dose? Or is it other medications that need to be adjusted? I, I actually don't know the answer. Well, I could just you add know. a comment to that. So many groups are now postponing the induction asparaginase. So we know they have a lot of liver toxicity when they get asparaginase very early on. Once the leukemia is more or less controlled and have the rapid tumor lysis early on, they are much more tolerable. So maybe we say you shouldn't give it at day one or day four, but rather at the end of induction therapy. And that's one way to mitigate the toxicity. Is there other ways to monitor for asparaginase levels indirectly if there's no test available, specifically in low-middle-income countries? How else would you measure asparaginase levels indirectly? So for some patients, you have options to indicate that there is an effect. I mean, you can measure ammonia in your bloodstream. Very few do that routinely. But you could say that if you have ammonia liberation, not least if you have high levels, of course, it does indicate that the patient has been exposed. Many patients will have normal ammonia levels. But we sometimes see patients that get massive fatigue. Some may fall asleep. They feel dizzy or uncomfortable. And it's associated with very high levels of ammonia. I mean, levels similar to what you see with urea cycle insufficiency. The other options, of course, if you have patients on a protocol where you routinely do lumbar punctures for intrathecal therapy, you can measure the asparagine there. But it will only work for some of your patients. Okay. What other strategies do you use to reduce allergy-like or allergic-like reactions? You said that you have more in the pediatric population than adults, but we still see it in the adults. And I know that's a common question. You did mention that you need to measure the TDM level, but are there other strategies to reduce allergies? No, you cannot. When it comes to the allergy, we don't really know any data that is effectively prohibiting or preventing the development of the true hypersensitivity. When it comes to the allergy-like reaction. Many of these are associated with ammonia levels. Ammonia levels will be even higher with albinia, and you can reduce those levels by having a longer infusion time. And for some patients where this is a significant problem, you would often have, even with PEC, quite high plasma levels, and you can reduce the dose and in that way reduce the ammonia level and the hypersensitivity-like reaction. If you switch a patient to the newer Rileys, how are you doing it? Are you doing the Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 25, 25, 50? Are you doing the 25 milligrams per meter squared every 48 hours? The Monday, Wednesday, Friday dosing just recently came out. 
We have been doing the Q48 hours just simply because our infusion center is open on the weekends. And to be honest, a lot of my young adult patients who are in their 20s and have difficulty with rides or getting off work, it it tends to be better for them to get it on the weekends anyway. So we've stuck with the Q48 hour dosing and not switched to Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but we have that. that Are you using six or seven doses? So that's actually been an ongoing debate. (laughs) My pharmacist and I were just talking about it. We're going to switch to to seven, although yeah. we had we have been doing the six. Yeah, we've been doing seven, and we yeah. have the same issue. We're open on the weekends, but we're going to offer up the 25, 25, 50. Can you give PEG-based COVID vaccine to a patient who has developed a hypersensitivity to PEG asparaginase? Well, I mean, that's what people have been doing. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> and we know that that even if you are worried about the PEG in, in the COVID, you are PEG exposed continuously in your life, probably as, as we sit here. And so I haven't heard of patients that had severe reactions towards the COVID and that could be linked to their previous reactions. So we wouldn't hold back. So okay. we just COVID vaccinate our patients, whether or not they've had previously asparaginase hypersensitivity reaction. In a patient with a clinical hypersensitivity or infusion reaction, if there's no alternative form, is there any role for desensitization? Well, that's an interesting issue. I don't want to respond to that. In <laughs> principle, you could say for any count where you have hypersensitivity, it may be possible to desensitize the patient. Sometimes you need massive exposures, and, and that wouldn't really be doable with arrhenia. Right. <laughs> and you need immune suppression, and I don't know whether you want to have more immune suppression in your patient. So... It's a tricky question. I like that some research is trying to explore it. Great. There's a question asking us, uh, does any one of us from the panel have experience using L-carnitine for prophylaxis? So we'll start with you, Emily. So I have not routinely used it for prophylaxis. I've certainly used it after a patient has developed hepatotoxicity to try to mitigate that hepatotoxicity. Patients who had received levocarnitine, they had a significant decrease in the incidence of hyperbilirubinemia. This was most pronounced in patients who were obese and particularly in the older patients. But I have not started to incorporate it for prophylaxis. So I guess it depends on the term prophylaxis, right? I do the same thing. So I don't administer it ad hoc in all patients, but if a patient develops hepatotoxicity, I'll initiate L-carnitine and then I'll continue it for subsequent doses. So I guess, is that prophylaxis for the other ones or is that treatment of that? I don't discontinue it once the hepatotoxicity resolves. I'll continue it and then I'll stop it once their asparaginase period is over. At least that's what I've done. Mm-hmm. Bill? Well, no, I haven't done it preemptively. We frequently discuss this with our clinical geneticists, those who have an interest in inborn error of metabolism. They generally claim that unless you have clearly deficiency or some kind of metabolic disorder, they wouldn't expect it to play any role. However, it's very simple to administer. It's not very costly, but what we need is to do it in clinical trials. You need to make the randomized testing. It is rather inexpensive, and you can pick it up at the General Health Food Center or online from some people. I'm struck by this hypertriglyceridemia. I, I get the same call. Uh, the patient's labs are too lipemic to run. What the heck should we do? It's often written in some of the protocols that if their triglycerides are over an X amount, not continue. I know my pediatric colleagues say, why are you measuring it? Because it probably doesn't matter. What's your strategy? And why is there a lack of association between hypertriglyceridemia and pancreatitis? So Sorry. first of all, we, we haven't 
meant to eat continuously on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> so we are, we are meant to eat intermittently and our body tolerate these very, very high lipid levels extremely well because of evolution. I mean, we may destruct the equipment and the biochemical lab, but our patients do well. Now, the only area where I see there's some reasonably strong associations is with osteonecrosis. And that is a real question. Should we use some preventive measure like omega-3 to avoid osteonecrosis? And we really need the randomized study. We're doing a randomized study just to test how well does it affect the lipid levels that so we blinded between omega-3 or fish oil and, and something that looks and tastes similar but doesn't contain it and see whether it reduces the lipids. You need a very large randomized study to demonstrate that it reduces the risk of osteoporosis. And of course, there the target should primarily be the adolescents and young adults. Do you really think that triglycerides are driving the osteonecrosis, or is it just a correlative for high asparaginase activity? I mean, is it true, true related, or is it? I mean, osteonecrosis is strange because you expose the patient. We know steroids play a role, and then you wait two years for osteonecrosis to develop. Exactly. So it's a very slow. We recently started metabolite levels during maintenance therapy, 14,000 measurements. There was no correlation with the risk of osteonecrosis. So it's not that you pre prevent the repair mechanism. That continuous exposure to omega-3 may play a role because our patients are very frequently hyperlipidemic, not least because we give them pulses with incristin and, and steroids. And I can come up with some explanations of why the correlation should take place, but whether, whether it's the true or not, I don't know. I know, you may be right there. <laughs> Emily, what do you thought? I continue the asparaginase through the hyperlipidemia. I usually will start a fibrate in addition to the fish oil just because it's pretty well tolerated. I actually am curious because I've wondered this quite a bit myself and I haven't found great data on why there's not a clear correlation with pancreatitis in this population. I remember distinctly as a new attending, one of the poor residents saw the triglyceride level and immediately called the ICU to right. admit the patient because of that, that risk. So I'm curious if you guys have come across any data or any thoughts on... On why there's why. no... Correlation. Yeah. No. Yes, and why there's no, no. correlation. I, yeah, I don't. No. We, we learned that in medical school. There are data to do phoresis of the lipids, and people have done that. There's anecdotal reports. It's not clear that it does anything other than fix the numbers. So I don't use that. Have you guys Can start? I just add that I think yeah. it's important to mention that diet is not very effective, and it's very burdensome to your patient. Agreed. So don't put your patient on a diet because they have hyperlipidemia. Do you check for liver steatosis? That is an ultrasound like the Jamal group does. Emily, have you been using that as a practice to, to so, risk mitigate? In that study that I described, that study done at the University of Chicago, it was a single institution retrospective analysis. And what we did was we looked at patients who were at risk for hepatotoxicity. We did use yeah. a, an ultrasound to look for liver steatosis and then would dose reduce based on that. That's why a lot of the patients ended up getting the 500. I have not now routinely done that on all of my patients because the data is pretty mixed, but, but we did do that for that particular with the goal of reducing the dose. Gilles, are you guys using? No, not routinely. Even in your high BMI patients? I mean, we have done it for specific studies where we did ultrasound yeah. both of the liver and the pancreas to see where we can predict who will develop it subsequently, but, but it hasn't been affected, and we don't do it routinely. So a couple questions on thrombosis and management of thrombosis is proposed mechanism of the antithrombin-3 deficiency and if so, if you want to add on, then when you administer low molecular weight heparin, how are you managing three levels? 
All right. I'm going to defer the proposed mechanism and help somebody else answer that one. So we have been, especially when we're giving the low molecular weight heparin, we have been measuring the antithrombin three levels and repleting. The goal at which you replete, the data is all over the place right. as to at what, what level. I know our pediatricians will use 80%. I know there's some data we were using a lower, a lower level. But we have, I have been checking AT3 levels following asparaginase and repleting. So in all patients or patients, just patients who are on low molecular weight heparin? I guess that's so, the question. Yeah. So particularly in patients who are on low, low right. molecular weight heparin. And then whether or not I, I have been doing it, I, again, I don't think that the data is there to yeah. support that necessarily, but I have been checking it and repleting. What's your practice? So we do replete as well. So if they're below 0.5, would we replace? We did a mm -hmm. survey recently in the Nordic group, and it is over the board. I mean, some do and some do not, and some haven't really thought about it. So it's, it's clear that heparin <laughs> works. You need the 83 to make it work. Well, you need it above 0.5. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. So, so we did a study that in our center, it was not a randomized study. It was a sequential study where we, we, when we started using pediatric trials, we saw an exorbitant amount of clots. Most of them were catheter line associated, but some were PEs. Interestingly, there was not a huge difference in cavernous venous thrombosis between the pediatric and the adult. Having said that, we implemented a strategy where we're prophylaxing patients with low molecular weight heparin as long as their platelets are above 30, so a pound count recovery. And then we're repleting AT3 levels, lower if they're on no heparin, higher if they're on heparin. And we were in, and again, sequentially, we're able to reduce. I, I don't know which of those interventions worked, but that's what we do. And I think you're right, it's loose. Can I add a of comment? Course. So, so you, have, you have this Vicob triad to develop thrombosis. You have risk factors like you're bedridden or you have an in, in, in Sylvester catheter. Then you have the vasculature, and of course, then you have the coagulation factors. And we tend to miss the vasculature. So we know that if you measure endothelial markers like thrombomodulin, they are at the same level as patients with severe sepsis. So they're markedly increased. So we have vascular damage. It varies a lot between patients. We recently demonstrated that those that have high levels, even way before they have the thrombosis, have a significantly increased risk. And we know that asparaginase therapy changes these vascular biomarkers for endothelial damage. So that may be one way we could identify patients who are at a specific risk. We don't, and we even have drugs that can moderate that. Right. But we need to think more about the vasculature in these patients. Some of the liver toxicity that we see is probably also liver vasculature problems. Well, that's an interesting point. I had not considered that. We talked about AT3, but the, counter, the correlative of that, a separate question, again, keeping this theme of thrombosis. Do you prophylax? I just told you that we do. Do you prophylax your patients with uh, low molecular weight heparin or a DOAC prior to uh, the development any, of Any clock? patient, you mean? Any patient. No. I know many of our adults do. When we did the survey in the Nordic study on thrombosis, we couldn't see that those that provided it had a lower risk of thrombosis. So we don't see it as a recommendation routinely. Yeah. And we don't routinely do okay. it. But so we do, as I mentioned. But yeah, there's not a good randomized data. One last question on thrombosis, and this is an important one, is what do you do when a patient develops a sagittal venous thrombosis without administration of PEG asparaginase? Would you not administer PEG after that? And then again, if you can just clarify, how do you treat a patient who has a sagittal vein thrombosis? Mm -hmm. So I would be nervous, but I think based on some of the data that... Everyone would be nervous. <laughs> I'd say, what are you doing? I mean, asparaginase is so important, and if you're going to say that they can't get it for the rest of the treatment, I would treat them and then give the asparaginase, you know, whether or not you 
push that then to day 16 or a little bit later and give them some chance. But I, I'm curious because so, you guys so have done it. At least until recently, we didn't have any data. So we need to convince first yourself, then your colleagues, and then, of course, the family themselves and the patient. And, and that may be challenging. Now we know from this study with, where, as you said, three quarter of all patients that had the sinus thrombosis were re-exposed. The frequency was the same for the pediatrics, for the adolescents, and for the adults. So they were re-exposed. And only one out of 33 re-exposed patients got a new episode of CNS thrombosis. That patient completely normalized clinically and imaging-wise subsequently. I think we have been over-worried about that risk. Now we know the data about what happens if you truncate aspirationase. Well, you have more relapses. So we would systematically re-expose the patient. You need, of course, to have normalization. We don't require that the imaging, the bloodstream is normalized, but at least clinically, the patient needs to be normalized. And that's nearly always the case for the children, but there may be older patients who have less regeneration ability. And if you still have neurological deficits, very few would be willing to re-expose their patient. Yeah, I mean, that's the approach that we've taken, clinical normalization. I like to see some recanalization on the imaging before I do. I don't require it to be normal, mm -hmm. and they may miss a dose, and then I will restart. That's been the, poly the, the, the practice in our group, but I agree with the data is very clear. And it's nice to have data because my, my interpretation was based on anecdotes, and now it's nice to have data. So thanks for the group. A few words on pancreatitis. What can we do to prevent pancreatitis? There is this question about a relationship between allopurinol and pancreatitis. Is there anything that we can do? A, when is pancreatitis most common? Is it during induction? Is it after? And is there something we can do to up the risk? Emily, and then Kiel. So pancreatitis tends to occur a bit later in the, the course of treatment. As far as mitigation, there may be some loose connections with allopurinol. I'm not as familiar with the data. Maybe somebody else can comment on that. But as far as other ways to mitigate it, there's not, not a whole lot that I'm aware of. So, yeah. so the risk, when you take first-line therapy, the risk per dose you give is probably in the order of 0.5%. So it's rather low, but since we give many, many doses, it accumulates. It's not that it's early, like hypersensitivity. It tends to be the same risk with every dose you give. And when you re-expose the patient, that risk is probably 10 times as high, but still it's only one in, one in five or one in seven of the children when they're re-exposed that on the first dose, get pancreatitis. But if you re-expose them many times because they still miss like 10 doses, of course, it will accumulate and reach the 44% that you mentioned. When we look at the adult and adolescent group, one third would have their second episode already at the first dose. So that's a major difference between the children and the adolescent and the young adults. The other thing about the adults is that the risk of getting permanent insulin-dependent diabetes is in the order of 20% for the adult and adolescent group, and it's much, much lower for the children. So you say that there are two factors that may make adult hematologists less prone to re-expose the risk of diabetes and the likelihood that they will get pancreatitis already at the first dose. When we have extensive aspartinase-based protocols, well, they're missing 10 doses. Let's try to give them a few, and, and in most cases, it will work. I don't typically, if they've had real clinical pancreatitis, that's just, I've, I've not re-challenged my patients. What about you, Emily? No, I have not. Yeah. But I think it probably gets to this difference between yeah. the pediatric patients and the adults. Yes, but the note, risks. there's no association with the risk compared with the data you have for the first pancreatitis. It's not that those that had severe 
have a higher risk yeah. when they're re-exposed compared to them that have a very mild first pancreatitis. Yeah. The level of enzymes do not seem to be associated. So as clinicians, we feel, oh, yeah. I can predict this was very severe. I don't want to re-expose, but the risk is probably the same even if the first episode was very mild. I, I will make a comment on two of my patients who developed pancreatitis late, and it was after some alcoholic indiscretion. And so one was... Rarely uh, have that challenge. Yeah. <laughs> but one was very excited that he finished his asparaginase regimen, and him and his friends went out for a night of drinking. And that was not an advisable thing. So I, I do raise that. One, a couple questions here on thematics in terms of when to switch to Irwinia. Is it just for hypersensitivity, which that's obvious. You approached that, you discussed that field, but were there, are there other toxicities for what you say, yeah, I don't want to give PEG anymore. I'm going to give Asperger, I'm going to give Irwin again. So the only study that we've done, I mean, in a large international scale with multiple patients where we compare, what's the risk of a second pancreatitis with the drug that you give? And there was no difference whatsoever. So we believe that the, the toxicities for pancreatitis and problems of troposis is associated with the asparagine depletion. And there, either the drug shouldn't work. If there's some toxicities that's associated with ammonia liberation, that is much, much higher for avinia because it has more glutaminase activity compared to PEG asparaginase. And there, the two drugs may be a difference. So if you have continuously very severe allergy-like reactions, so you think, should I shift? No, it will only get worse. Okay. But if you have... The classical toxicities like pancreatitis, thrombosis, and or osteonecrosis, we think that it's associated with asparagine depletion, and that's what you want to obtain, so there shouldn't be a difference. Emily, any? I don't typically switch other than for hypersensitivity. Other for hypersensitivity. Well, I want to thank everybody for their participation. I want to thank everybody who is treating your patients with these difficult strategies. Thank you for your attention, and be safe. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. D'Angelo, Dr. Schmilo, and Dr. Curran. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, Acute Lymphoplastic Leukemia Data and Case Discussion on the Use of Asparaginase Therapy in Young and Older Adults, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks.